I'm Talmadge Boston, and welcome to this edition of Cross-Examining History, where we explore American history and thought leadership through conversations with best-selling authors. Today, I'm interviewing Annette Gordon-Reed, a Pulitzer-winning historian about her new book, On Juneteenth. The book came out May 4, 2021, and we did the interview in front of a live audience in Dallas on March 24, 2022. Enjoy. She was nominated for Texan of the Year by the Dallas Morning News for her efforts to promote Juneteenth into a national holiday and her wonderful book. But before that, she'd won some other honors like the Pulitzer Prize for her book, The Hemings of Monticello. And this uh, book I love, More Blessed, uh, Most Blessed of the Patriarchs about Thomas Jefferson. Uh, so Annette is uh, a professor at Harvard Law School, but most importantly to us, she's a Texan. She was born in Livingston, Texas. She grew up in Conroe, Texas. She still has family in Texas. So Annette, welcome to Sapientia. Hi, and just say hi. Hello. <laughs> Thank you for inviting me. Very glad to be here. Good. I realize I left my questions on my table. <laughs> okay. So what do I do until... Oh, there we go. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> I, I, need a, I need a... Like Johnny Carson used to do the, the little soft shoe. <laughs> okay. Now, Annette, uh, Juneteenth which was June 19, 1865, was when the slaves in Texas were emancipated by the order of a Union Army general stationed in Galveston, which came more than two months after uh, Lee had surrendered to Grant at Appomattox. So why did it take so long, more than two months, for Texas slaves to be freed? Because... Um, the Army of the Trans-Mississippi kept fighting. Lee surrendered in April, and uh, the Confederate Army of the Trans-Mississippi kept fighting until June, didn't surrender until June 2nd. And it wasn't until the Army of the United States, as we call it now, we don't say Union as much, uh, Army of the United States could not make this order and could not enforce this until they'd taken over. And once there was a surrender, that's when they came in. Mm -hmm. Now, for over a century, Juneteenth has been a day for celebration among African-Americans in Texas. But now, thanks to you and others, there's a movement to make it a national holiday, uh, even though slavery, as you point out in the book, didn't really end until the ratification of the 13th Amendment, which was on December 6th, 1865, and that was officially proclaimed 12 days later on December 18th. 1865. So which of these three dates should be the national holiday? Juneteenth. <laughs> Juneteenth is the end of, so it recognizes, the way I put it, the end of the armed conflict to preserve slavery. And I think that that's an important thing to, to commemorate. Um, the legal end of slavery is something that we should know. People should know that. But because Juneteenth has the resonance that it's had, and other states have their own days, as a matter of fact, where they um, you know, celebrate emancipation 
in their time, uh, but it's just that Texas, we fixed it so that everybody celebrates ours. And I think that's appropriate. Okay. <clears throat> now you say in your book, in your introduction, that what this marvelous little book is, is quote, a look at history through the median of personal memoir. So how did you get that inspiration or have that epiphany to use that approach? Well, my editor, Bob Weil at Live Right, which is a division of Norton, has wanted me to do a book about Texas for a long time. But he wants me to do a big book about Texas. And after I had done an essay for The New Yorker about Juneteenth, just about the holiday itself, I got the idea that maybe along with Bob, Bob encouraged this as well, to do something shorter than what I anticipated doing. And I was in New York, it was during the pandemic, and I'm sure you all remember that New York was sort of ground zero for uh, the pandemic, and Harvard had gone virtual. No more, we weren't doing in-person classes, and so I stayed in New York with my husband and did my classes, and then after that was over, there was really nothing much for me to do <laughs> besides take a walk every day, and there were tents and so forth in Central Park for the overflow of the you know, patients from hospitals and so forth. It was very grim. And I started thinking about my parents, who are no longer living, and I missed them. And I thought that it might be a good way to get back in touch with them to talk about the life we had together here uh, growing up. And so I wanted to do a memoir. I didn't want to talk too much about myself. I wanted to, at the same time, sort of combine what Bob was talking about, the idea of talking about Texas. I, have, I spent a lot of time explaining Texas um, in, in the Northeast. And I thought that this book would give me a chance to do that on a small scale. So it was a combination of missing my parents, wanting to connect to that world again, and also wanting to talk about Texas, and to do that through the story of my family. Mm -hmm. Now, when you started the book, did you realize that to tell the full story of Juneteenth, you'd have to tell the, quote, story of Indians, settler colonialists, Hispanic culture in North America, slavery, race, and immigration? Well, I kind of had an idea that some of those things would come to, you know, come to the fore, but I hadn't really thought as much about how Texas embodies all of those kinds of things, and it's one of the things that makes it a very complicated place. You know, I, was, I gave a talk at uh, UNT uh, yesterday, and one of the things that I said was that, you know, Texas is sort of a microcosm of the United States in a way. A lot of the stuff that happened here happens in the other part of the country. It was always a diverse place. It wasn't a place that became, a state that became um, diverse after years. It was there from the very, very beginning. And so we've been grappling with these questions. Before it was Texas, all of the groups that you mentioned, all here together, trying to make a place for themselves. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Now, as you point out, the rest of the United States, and you see this in the Northeast where you've lived for years, has often pictured Texas and Texans in terms of a stereotype. Mm -hmm. Typically a <laughs> cowboy, a rancher, 
or an oil man. Now you're a native Texan, you grew up here, though you spent your adult life in the Northeast. Is the image of the stereotype of Texan changing? Well, I think so. As more groups identify that way, and as we focus much more on some of the issues that are involved in Texas, you're hearing people sort of stand up and say, is more to this to the state than the image of the movie Giant, which is what I think lots of people think of. The, you know, as I said, the, as you said, we pointed out the cowboy, the oil man, and the, you know, the cattle rancher. Um, there are other people there. And I think as black people and Hispanic people come into their own politically, people want to tell a broader story because you can't really get the true story until everybody, everybody's story is involved in all of this. Because these people, they knew each other. They dealt with one another. It wasn't just one group of people you know, who were living here. They were interacting with all different types. And so as we tell the whole story, I think it becomes much more, I'm not going to say it'll, it'll never be understandable <laughs> uh, to everybody, but it will be, it'll be clear. The picture will be clearer and it'll be more fair, I think. Okay. Now, Stephen F. Austin, for whom our capital is named, is often called the father of Texas, even though he never married and never had any children. Uh, what was his role in maintaining slavery in Texas from the time he arrived here in 1825 until his death in 1836? Well, he taking over from his father, Moses, who died before he could do this, is responsible for bringing groups of European uh, settlers into Texas. And he said at various points in a couple of letters, he talked about the institution of slavery. And he said, talk about how necessary it was that if whites came to Texas without slavery, they could expect to be, he said, I think the phrase he used, poor for a very long time because they would have to do the work themselves. And so this was always supposed to be a part of it. He didn't think of himself as, he was anti-slavery. He characterized himself as anti-slavery, not so much because of the moral issue, but he had a problem with so many black people living in the state. And in order to have slavery, you would have to have black people. But so he was of two minds about all of this. You needed it, but he was concerned about it. So. Slavery was a part of the story from the very, very beginning because Texas was supposed to be a part of the Cotton Empire. As the Cotton Empire moved west, and certainly you know, during the war, many, many people from Georgia and Alabama and other places came to Texas with their enslaved people, including my ancestors, um, to get rid of one step ahead of the United, instead of the army, to try to settle here. So a lot of the black people who are in Texas during this time period were people who had been recently brought over uh, trying to get away from emancipation. So this was a key part of the state and it was part of their tension with Mexico because Mexico had outlawed slavery, but they had given the Texans sort of a special deal because they knew how important Europeans, uh, uh, Anglo-Americans um, in Texas felt about um, the plantation system, that they couldn't make it work without, without slaves. Mm -hmm. Now, as we mentioned, you, although you're born in Livingston, you grew up in Conroe. And in the fourth grade and in the seventh grade, and this was my situation too in <laughs> Houston and Corpus Christi, we were required for the entire year to study <laughs> Texas history. So 
I'm sure most people, that was... Yeah, that was part of growing that. up in Texas. You had to study Texas history for two years. <clears throat> and so during your... I realize you've slept since the fourth and the seventh grade. But, <laughs> but, but what do you remember about the coverage of the institution of slavery in Texas as it was taught in the 1960s? Well, you know, I, I know it was mentioned but not very much. And I, I have a feeling that there are two reasons for it. There may have been some discomfort in talking about it because it's a tough subject. I think there may have been some concern about how black students would feel talking about it as well. So a lot, it was mentioned, but it wasn't talked about. I, I don't think I understood the deal with Mexico until I was a teenager. And that was something that I found out on my own that in fact, part of the reasons that you, the Texans wanted to leave was the concern that the Mexicans might change their minds about slavery and attack slavery. And so that makes the, the situation a bit more ambivalent, for, made me more ambivalent about you know, the Alamo and all those kinds of things. So it was mentioned, but not seriously. What I remember about fourth grade history would be, I think probably Quanta Parker. Mm -hmm. I, mean, that, I mean, that story, you know, Cynthia Parker, Quanta Parker, that's the, the I, I don't know why that stuck, stuck in my mind. I guess it's the idea of somebody being kidnapped. Um, but I don't, I remember more about talking a little bit about native peoples than slavery. Well, not only was Cynthia Parker kidnapped, but then she married an Indian chief leader and the whites tried to get her to come back to civilization and she refused. That was the part of the story that I found so intriguing. Yeah, well, that happened a lot. I mean, the, the whole... The whole notion of captives who don't want to go back. Mm -hmm. But she was, what, 12 years old? And by the time they found her, she'd had kids and so forth. Mm -hmm. now, now, growing up in Conroe, you started in kindergarten with, uh, there was an all-black uh, school, grades K through 12, Booker T. Washington School. But then your very bold and courageous parents decided that in the first grade, they wanted you to start going to the white schools. And of course, this was after uh, Brown versus, versus Board of Education. But that was pretty uh, courageous of, for you, a first grader. You're the only African-American in, in your class, maybe at the whole elementary school, well, yeah, the whole school, the whole town, the whole place, yeah. You were it. I mean, you know, we see those pictures of the integration of the Little Rock School and that famous young black girl who's, they bring in the federal marshals. Well, they didn't need the federal marshals in Conroe, mm -hmm. but, but talk about that experience of, of being the trailblazer, the Jackie Robinson <laughs> of uh, the, the, the white schools in Conroe. Well, it, my parents and the school district and the newspaper, I wanted to say the press, but it was only one newspaper in Conroe. Um, but they were the press, right? Um, decided that they wouldn't make a big deal about it, that I would just go. And I wasn't escorted. My father took me to school and dropped me off. And I just sort of started as if this were normal. It wasn't normal over the weeks I, well, the first year, actually, Periodically, administrators and people would come and stand in the doorway, and you know, and I could tell they were there to observe. I don't know what they thought was going to happen, but 
you know, uh, to serve this black child in a group of white children. And my teacher, Mrs. Daughtry, everybody remembers their first grade teacher, right? Um, was wonderful, absolutely wonderful. And it wasn't until after I wrote the book that I began to think about the fact that maybe it was the fact that my mother was a teacher that made her and the other teachers who were all very protective of me and all very, you know, you know good people to me. They, I mean, I'm sure they were good people in and of themselves, but I wonder if the connection, this was not a professional courtesy kind of thing that was going on uh, with it. And I was a good student and I liked school. Some of the kids were nice and some weren't. Um, but it was, it was pretty intense. I knew that it was a big deal. My mother, my mother's had an aunt who was very, who lived in Houston and was really, really extravagant. And she went out to a department store that used to be the big department store there called Sackowitz. And um, great pecan rolls they used to have. Um, Sackowitz and bought me, you know, I had clothes, but she went out and bought a whole new wardrobe, all these kinds of things. This was like her contribution to this effort. And so I knew that this was a big deal. And, you know, it, it, was, it was intense, but it's like anything. As you get to be older, you look back on things and you think more about the good things than the bad things that happened. Mm -hmm. And I consider myself to have had a good time at, at Anderson. Well, with each passing year, was it kind of like Jackie Robinson? Uh, <laughs> one, this one baseball or, analogy. You got that. <laughs> but, you know, like one or two or three <laughs> African-Americans, maybe in your second grade or your third grade. I mean, was it a, a process? Well, what happened was this was all done under something called the Freedom of Choice Plan, where white parents were supposed to pick white schools and black parents were supposed to pick black schools. And that's how my parents ended up choosing to send me to Anderson. Well, the Supreme Court three years after this, declared those freedom of choice plans illegal and unconstitutional. And then everybody had to switch. So it was all of a sudden, everybody switched around. And then that caused a lot of problems because there were many black people who were upset about this because Booker T. Washington had been the center of the black community. And the teachers lived in the community, and they knew one of the kids and so forth. And so the something, something is all, anytime there's something that's, that's progress, there are going to be things that are lost. You know, I mean, the, you get the horseless carriage, and then the buggy whip people have to go out of business and are upset about that. Or even things that are more, you know, necessary, things that are, that people become, attached to, you have to change. So it was good and bad doing this. So it was, I would say it wasn't a gradual thing. It was a, the abruptness of it was once, once they declared this unconstitutional and everybody had to change schools, it was, it could be, it was a really tense time. Mm -hmm. Now Conroe, like so many towns in Texas and the deep south, had its fair share of racial injustice. Uh, blacks were lynched. Mm -hmm. Uh, burned alive, uh, forced into making confessions for crimes they didn't do, mm -hmm. and murdered without any uh, criminal consequences. So as you learned about Conroe's dismal history, how did that affect you or inspire you for to do something different? I'm just trying to put myself in your position when you learn about how your ancestors and your, your, your friends' ancestors 
how horribly they were treated for so long. Well, that's probably why I went to school at Dartmouth. <laughs> you know, I, I wanted to, to try something different, to go to see the world in a different way. But at the same time, as I say in the book, you know, I grew up here, my parents were here, my family is here, and I felt an attachment to it. But I wanted, it, it made me want to go out and, and to see the world and see what was different and how people did things differently there. Um, I grew up knowing about Conroe's tough reputation, as you said, with a, sort of as a site for the Klan um, person, you know, people lynched, all those kinds of things. But I also knew, as I said, that this is, my family had not left, you know? I, my, my family is not like other families in the South. Many other families in the South where people left on the Great Migration. Uh, most, many Texans went to California and Arizona and places. Most of my family remained here and is, is still here now. All of them are here. So when they left little towns and went to Houston or went to Dallas, they didn't go to New York. So I think my concern and the feelings that I had, ambivalence that I had at the time about my town probably led me to go away to school. Now, most, as you point out in the book, most of the crimes against black men in Conroe came from the fact that they were secretly dating white women. So this, of course, made me think of Tom Robinson in To Kill a Mockingbird. Mm -hmm. So how did Harper Lee's classic book impact you? Well, I saw the movie before I read the book. And I would say the book itself, well, the, I think the main thing it, it dealt, it, it, the impression I had about it was not so much the story, although that's very powerful, it's her writing. <laughs> Harper Lee is a writer and able to evoke a mood and evoke the character so much. So and I've, I always wanted to be a writer. So that kind of presentation, a very straightforward, clear presentation, that probably had much more of an effect on me than the actual story. Because as, you know, as I said, I, I'd heard about those kinds of stories in real life. Mm -hmm. But her, her, Lee, as a writer, uh, was very impressive to me. Mm -hmm. In fact, we have in our audience the leaders of the Dallas Bar Association Equality Committee, and we're having a virtual book talk about To Kill a Mockingbird next Monday during the noon hour. Where, where's my friends from that committee? Here we go. Over here. Tuesday, she so said. So we're glad you're here. We're glad you're doing that. Uh, I'm sure you're going to get a great uh, response. I'm honored to be part of that conversation. Now, Annette, you cover the Alamo in your book about its heroes and how once you kind of start digging a little, don't have to dig that deep, you realize maybe they weren't so heroic after all, at least as human beings. They were certainly heroic during the 13 days of glory, but before then, they weren't exactly model citizens. Uh, so when I say, remember the Alamo, <laughs> what should we remember about the Alamo? Well, when I see Remember the Alamo, the first thing I think of, and this is probably, I shouldn't say it, but Pee Wee Herman, uh, the movie. <laughs> I don't remember anything. I remember the Alamo uh, from a movie, Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Uh, 
I, what, what I think of is the complexity of that situation. Of, I, I talk in the book about, through the movie, there was a movie, The Alamo, that was re-released when I was a John I was a, Wayne as Davy Crockett. In the, in the fourth grade, and I went to see it with a friend of mine. And of course, I had no idea about, you know, the other, about Bowie and, and Travis and all those kinds of things. I just think of, I think of people on a failed mission who did, who were brave in those circumstances, but had a lot of problems. Travis basically, you know, leaves his wife <laughs> and children. And I mean, leaving aside the slavery, there are some real issues here with him. And I was disappointed because Lawrence Harvey is so ha handsome in that movie. <laughs> and uh, Jim Bowie. Jim Bowie. Oh, Richard Widmark. Yeah, great. Uh, Slave trader, but Jim uh, Boy was a slave trader. Yeah, with John Lafitte and yeah. uh, and his brother, uh, you know they they stood they stood for something, and I don't like all that they stood for. Interestingly enough, when the Texas legislators left the state to try to avoid the vote on on the on voter suppression, one of them said, and I, I'm almost certain he's African-American, he said, this is our Alamo. And so the Alamo, leaving aside the details of the story, the notion of standing for what you believe in and being willing to die for a cause, uh, this person took this to heart, even though it, would, it didn't really fit the circumstance in, in a way that I think if he'd actually been thinking about it. But this is what Texans have, you know, fourth grade, seventh grade, you know, I, as I recall, we were made to sort of look at uncritically. But now we can look at things critically and accept the things that are admirable, but at the same time not pretend that it's all perfect. Mm -hmm. You also cover the difference between Thomas Jefferson's Declaration of Independence and the Texas Declaration of Independence, which was approved on March 2nd, 1836. That's why March 2nd is Texas Independence Day. And what was the most important difference between Jefferson's Declaration of Independence and the one that, that Texas passed? Well, Jefferson's preamble, uh, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. That's, I mean, the rest of the structure of the, the Texas Declaration sort of copies uh, the American Declaration, but without those words, because those words were actually quite controversial. And you may remember that Alexander Stevens, the um, vice president of the Confederacy, specifically repudiated those words and repudiated Jefferson because of those words. Now we talk about, you know, people wonder, well, did he really believe that? Well, the Confederates, at least Stevens thought he meant it and that that was a mistake. So we have a declaration without those particular words that have come to mean a lot, not to just Americans, but to people all over the world, as a matter of fact. Well, you've come a long way as far as Conroe goes. You've talked about your <laughs> challenging childhood growing up, and now Annette Gordon-Reed is the most celebrated and honored person to ever come out of Conroe. They've got a big mural on the wall of, of Annette. They have a bust of her in the... They had a the, school named after me. They have a school named after I didn't even know that. You didn't mention that in the book. <laughs> well, that just happened. Okay. <laughs> We are, let me see this. We are the, I just got the mascot. We are the Gordon Reed Elementary Cubs. 
the Tiger Cubs, because the high school is the Conroe Tigers, so this is an elementary school and they're the Cubs. It's really cute. That is cute. <laughs> but what's your response to being appreciated as an adult after being treated so poorly so many times as a child? Well, you know, I, there were kids who treated me very poorly. I mean, the teachers were, I mean, the people at, adults were very good to me. And it's not to say that there were not problems. There were problems. I, I would talk about the, the way African-American people were treated in Conroe. It's the complexity of Texas. On one hand, there are still lots of really, really, you know, people who are racist in, in that area. But I have a school name for me. That's not something that I would have ever in a million years, not just because of me, but because of the racial angle. It would just have been inconceivable when I was a kid. So that's the thing I say in the book. There's good and bad, and there's so much potential in Texas. There's so many ways that we could be better that that's what I, that's what I really hope for. So, you know, I, I look at that situation, and it makes me be optimistic. I have to be optimistic. I don't, I don't think I have a choice of being optimistic other than to be optimistic. Well, this is my last question, and then we'll have a, a few from the audience. I warn you, this is a long question, but please listen, because I've kind of taken some really cool parts out of the end of Annette's book to frame it. <clears throat> that after you talked about the Alamo and the Texas Declaration of Independence, and then later covering the facts that Texas' original constitution, quote, prevented the immigration of free people, free black people, into the republic. I didn't know that. And that after the Civil War, the Freedmen's Bureau, whose job was to try to integrate freed slaves into society with jobs and so forth, had its toughest challenges in Texas over every other southern state. And despite all that history, for you, quote, being a black person and a Texan are not in opposition. And in fact, you, quote, achieved a proper equilibrium. So how did you do that, to achieve that mindset, knowing all the history you know, all the experience you've had, the good and the bad, to reach the proper equilibrium? Well, I said I try to reach the proper equilibrium. <laughs> I try to reach the pro proper equilibrium. Well, be, be, about being realistic about the nature of life. It's good and it's bad. People are good and bad. Every place, there's no place that I've been that I can't tell. If I look at the history of it, I don't find horrific things. In the midst, in the middle of it, and you have to think about, you know, if you're optimistic, to think about the potential of a place. I came to this equilibrium because, and I, I say one of the reasons I, I love Texas. What I love about it is the fact that this is where I was with my mother and my father and my brothers, and my grandmother and my, you know, my grandfather. My family was here. My friends were here. This is where I learned to love people and to be loved by people. And I can't let what other people, other people's hostility define the place that I belong in as much as they belong in it. It's not those people that matter. It's the people who have loved me and the people who I've loved here that count. So I think that's really how I did it. That's wonderful. I love that answer. <laughs> and walk over sure. there. Sure. Sure. Can you get out? That's it. Got it.
Okay, I hope, I hope everybody has enjoyed this program as much as I have. And I hope you think about your friends and who would enjoy reading this book and want to get copies for them, which Tom is happy to sell you and Annette is happy to sign it. This is a magical book and a magical story. And it's the right size for today's attention span. Uh, so, so please support uh, Annette. She did not charge an honorarium today. She was in town. She talked to UNT yesterday, and she's talking to SMU tonight. But uh, this would be a really wonderful way to say thank you for, for being such a great person. Such a makes us all as Texans feel great that we got a fellow Texan here doing the great things she's doing. And we hope that you will uh, join us for our upcoming other lunch programs in the next few months because they're going to be great as well. Thank you very much. Annette Gordon-Reed is a national treasure. She sure did a great job of combining history and memoir with her newest book. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Make sure and catch all my podcasts at Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Until next time, remember, as my late great friend Bobby Bregan used to say, you can't hit the ball with a bat on your shoulder. This is Talmadge Boston of the law firm Shackelford, Bowen, McKinley, and Norton. Thanks for listening.